following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This is our, our call to worship for this morning. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Now, turn your imagination up all the way. The wolf shall live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious." Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing him, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, Ooh, we, are the, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axes are already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but... After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thank you, Caitlin. I think that passage illustrates um, one of the things that's important about Advent is that it's, it's not all kind of peace and happiness. We, we, 
We are not racing ahead to Christmas just yet. Advent is a season of tension, of waiting, as that song that we sang indicates, and of uh, sometimes confusion and pain. So let's take a closer look at this reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, What I would like to do with it uh, is a little different than what I usually do, and that is to go through it really verse by verse, um, a little more slowly rather than just kind of getting some main ideas and talking about them in that way. And because I'm going to do it that way, I will encourage you to find this text somehow. Um, You can use the red Bibles, which are in the seat pockets if you wanted to. But what I might even recommend is if you have a smartphone or similar devices to just Google the word lectionary and uh, click that first link because what that will give you is not only this passage but all of the passages from today's uh, service, including some that we haven't read. Um, And so what you do, if you search for lectionary, the first result should be the Revised Common Lectionary online at, at Vanderbilt Divinity School. If you get that link, then at the top of that page, is something that says readings for the coming week. And if you tap right under there, you'll get all of the texts that we're going to do today in the translation that I'm going to use. You may have noticed that Caitlin read from a translation that was slightly different from the one that's on the screen. And I love that because I'm going to mention something that that will fit right in with that. But what I want to do is uh, have us take the opportunity to notice some details that we might miss if we speed through it. Have you ever gone for a walk or even a bike ride along a route that you usually only drive? What, do you, what happens to you when you do that? Don't you notice all kinds of other stuff? You say, I never even knew that, that my neighbors had a redbud tree, that kind of thing. When we go through this a little bit slowly, you might notice, I know I did, you might notice some things uh, in this passage that you'd miss otherwise. And so what I'll do is I'll just read the verses one at a time kind of and and make some observations along the way, and maybe I'll be able to point out some things that help you understand the text better. I hope so. One of my very favorite professors in my undergraduate studies when I was first pursuing Christian ministry would do this in in, um, our Old Testament classes. He would do it every class, and I, I couldn't get enough of it. He would sit there on the edge of his desk he might literally have had, like, uh, patches on his elbows. He was one of those types. And um, he would go through a chapter, verse by verse, and pause to explain everything along the way. And I had never felt so drawn into the Bible. It was surprising, because it's just like, this seems like a kind of dry concept. But when he did it, it was amazing. Uh, and to this day, I remember things that I learned in that context. It was quite compelling. Now, I have to say, unfortunately for you, uh, Dr. John Martin is approximately ten times smarter than I am. Um, And so this might not live up to that standard, but I hope that I can give you a little sliver of what that was like. All right, have you got Matthew 3 queued up now? All right, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I love this image of um, a prophet who appears out of nowhere in the middle of nowhere. He's out in the wilderness, which will come into play shortly. Now, I've read this chapter, these verses, dozens of times. I've preached on them several times because it, is, it does come around every three years uh, if we use the lectionary at Advent, which we do. Um, and I don't think in any of those readings or preachings have I ever noticed the word appeared before. Um, see, this is, what you, this is like the redbud tree in my neighbor's house. John just sort of appeared out there. <laughs> you ever had a public figure who just, you'd never heard of them and suddenly you, that's all you hear about? Right? I would, I would propose a specific one, but I would just show myself to be completely 
uh, culturally inept. But you could probably all think of one that's like really popular that I wouldn't know, and I'll find out about them in two years when you've forgotten about them. This is what happens. John the Baptist just appears on the scene, and he's out there in the wilderness. And what does he proclaim out in the wilderness? He proclaims and he exhorts people to what? To repent. How many of you have a somewhat fraught relationship with the word repent? How many of you have heard that word um, preached a little bit harshly in the past? Yes. Um, it's, very been, it's been very helpful for me to, to know that the word repent in the, uh, langu- the original language of the New Testament simply means a change of mind. I don't go too deep into Greek usually, but it's metanoia. So you could think of metamorphosis, which is a change of the body shape, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. Metanoia is like putting your mindset into a chrysalis and having it turn to goo, like a, like a caterpillar does in a chrysalis, by the way. Did you know that? Um, it's not like they sprout wings. <laughs> it's much uglier than that. That's what happens in your brain, and then suddenly it's transformed. Metanoia, that's repentance in the true uh, literal meaning of the word. Uh, Verse 3, this is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right, so here the gospel writer Matthew, in talking about John the Baptist, says that John the Baptist is the one that Isaiah was talking about. Now, who's Isaiah? Isaiah was one of the prophets of Israel, one of the major prophets of Israel. The dating of the book of Isaiah is somewhat in dispute, uh, depending on what your prior commitments are. (laughs) You might have a different view on that if you were a student of this kind of thing, but we think it's probably somewhere around the time of the Israelites being sent into exile in Babylon. And Isaiah uh, was a prophet in the tradition of the prophets of Israel, which does not mean usually that he was in the business of predicting the future. The role of a prophet in the nation of Israel and in the Bible is not so much predicting the future, although I'm going to put a disclaimer on this shortly because this one actually is, but rather to call the people to account, to yell at the people when they were out of line, and especially to yell at the people in power, the kings, who had gone astray about 45 seconds after they got to the throne, some of them before that. And the prophets usually went and preached hellfire and brimstone, not to the unsaved people outside the religious community, but to the people of God and especially to the leaders of the people of God who had gone astray. Right? That's the role of, the, of a prophet uh, typically in the Bible. Now Isaiah actually does have a little bit more of this predictive aspect of his prophecies, and he's heavily quoted in the New Testament in the Christian scriptures uh, because there's all kinds of things that Isaiah wrote um, or if you like, the people who were writing in the voice of Isaiah 100 years later wrote, that actually point toward Jesus as the Messiah to come, this, this promised anointed king, the final, fullest expression of kingship in, for the people of God and the, and the, uh, the Israelites. And that's what Matthew is doing here. Matthew, the, the author of the book that we're reading, this gospel reading, in talking about John, looks back to Isaiah and says, this is the guy that he was talking about. Interestingly, it's not pointing to Jesus just yet. There's some of that as well in Isaiah. But pointing to John the Baptist, who would then point to Jesus. Right? That's exactly what the prophecy was. Um, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, 
I'm seeing it on the screen there, and actually the break is in an interesting spot here, so you'll have to look at your, your phone or the Bible in front of you to catch what I'm doing here. But I think it's really interesting that you can arrange the words of this, these couple little verses here and get a slightly different meaning. And all you have to do is move a punctuation mark in the NRSV. The, the punctuation mark is the colon. Now, there's probably one or two people in the room who are remotely word nerdy enough to enjoy this as much as I do, but I'm, I, I, they gave me the microphone today, so we're going to do it. Look at this. Where do you put the colon? The text of the NRSV says, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, colon. So there's a person out in the wilderness who cries out and says, prepare the way of the Lord. But who says the colon goes there? There's no colon in the, in the original language. What if you put the colon after the word out? The voice of one crying out, colon. And what do they cry out? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Who cares? I care. And this is why. <laughs> because if the way of the Lord is prepared out in the wilderness, that says something very interesting to me. Because how many of you feel like you're out in the wilderness right now? And you couldn't even, if there was some path to Jesus, you wouldn't even be able to find the trailhead. Because your, your life is such a mess right now, right? Sometimes that's me. My life is such a mess right now. But if the way of the Lord starts out in the wilderness, that sounds to me like the beginning of good news. And all you have to do is move the colon. You have my permission. Put the colon wherever you want. <laughs> all right, verse 4. Now, John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, which is to say he was quite eccentric. <laughs> but it's important to remember we're looking at an ancient text. He's not as eccentric as somebody would be today if they lived in the wilderness with a camel hair coat and ate bugs and honey. <laughs> so like semi-eccentric is, is what we'll attribute to John here. Verse 5, then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea, that's like everybody in the known world who cared about the, the people of God uh, as defined by um, the Israelites, were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people were coming from all over to do these things, it, which tells us that this had turned into kind of a religious trend. This had become the thing that people did, I think the clues will tell us in just a minute, to indicate that they were up on the current trends of religion. My goodness, aren't we, isn't it so lucky that we don't do anything like that anymore nowadays? In my early days, I was at every hip and trendy conference you could find. Some of them were good. Some of them weren't. But it's important maybe for you to know that baptism is not something that Christians invented. Baptism is a very central ritual in Christianity today. It's not much used in Judaism, I think, because of that fact. But baptism originated in Judaism. It was not maybe super common, but it was something that they did. Um, and what we find out in just a minute is that even something as apparently vulnerable as being baptized, which if you've ever been baptized by full immersion you know is pretty vulnerable. It's a pretty vulnerable experience. And confessing your sins publicly, we don't really make you do that, by the way. If you ever want to get baptized at Artisan, I'll dip you and dunk you if you want, but typically we just pour water over your head. It's a little bit less vulnerable. And I don't make you confess your sins in front of everybody, just so you know. John did. He was a little bit eccentric. 
And what happened is, even something as vulnerable as that became the trendy thing to do. And who shows up but the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Uh, some of you know these terms. Some of you don't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were uh, two of the major subgroups of Judaism in the ancient Near East. They were very institutionalized, and they were sometimes in conflict with each other. If you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that the Sadducees say that there, there's no resurrection um, and that was like a point of contention that they had with Jesus. And they were extremely legalistic. And so you might think that the idea of the public confession of sin would be something that appealed to them very much. Certainly legalistic people would like nothing more than to confess their own sins, right? Well, <laughs> no. Legalistic people want others to confess their sins, to take the, usually to take the attention off themselves. And John is having nothing to do with it. He wants nothing to do with this performative version of repentance and confession of sins. What does he say to them? You brood of vipers. You family of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? We haven't seen any wrath yet. When the Pharisees show up, he pulls out the wrath card. Later on, by the way, Jesus will echo this sentiment by uh, calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which is to say you've put this very thin, cheap white paint on the outside of yourself to make yourself look passable, and inside is nothing but rotting, decaying flesh. And then what does John say to them? I love this. Chapter 3, verse 8, John goes on and he says, Bear fruit worthy of repentance. You know, this is something that I think we've lost in the, in the heavily Protestant world where we emphasize, I think correctly, that we're saved by uh, faith and by God's grace, not by stuff that we do. In other words, you cannot you know, turn your own life around to make it good enough uh, to meet the standard. That's the, kind of the Protestant evangelical message, right? I'm not dismissing that. But what we've lost as a result is the consistent message in Scripture that's maybe a little quieter, which is that if this is true for you, it ought to be making a difference in your life. And what John says to the Pharisees is, um, if your life is not bearing fruit that shows that, that it is the product of repentance and confession and life change and metanoia, mindset, heart set change, then get lost. You have to bear fruit that's worthy of the idea of repenting. That's a, it's, a, it's too nuanced for a gospel crusade. That's why you don't hear this kind of thing very often, I don't think. But he's saying, don't just play at this. If you're going to say that you are repenting, it should show up in your life. Right? And one of my favorite and most formative in my own life passages in the whole Bible is in Ephesians 5, when it says what the fruit of the Spirit are. You've heard me rant on about this many, many times. Some of you have to memorize the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. And I always miss one and never know what it is, but you get the point. If the Spirit of God is present in your life, this is what should be happening. You should be bearing these particular fruits. And if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, if all those are on the downturn in your life, that is 
a good indication that the Holy Spirit is absent from your life, or at least is getting quieted down too much. And the presence of the Spirit taking root in you again should lead to the increase of those fruits. And what John is saying is Pharisees, Sadducees, snakes, if you're not bearing fruit worthy of this, if you're just here to show everyone else that you've done the religious trend, go home. Have some integrity. Which, by the way, you might have noticed is the title of today's sermon. I love the word integrity. It appears nowhere in this passage. Why did I make it the the title of the sermon? You'll see. You'll see. Just hang with me. Do you, uh, uh, fellow word nerds, see any other words that relate to the word integrity? What's close to integrity? What's another English word? Integral or integrate. Also, integer. Are you ready for some math from the humanities nerd? (laughs) If you want the full lecture, Ken gave it to me earlier. I'm sure he'd be happy to give it to you. Oh, he's over there. An integer is a a whole number. No fractions, no decimals. I don't care about the difference between that and the other things, whether they're negative or positive or include zero. I'm not interested in any of that. Uh, You're not a bad person if you do. Ken would love to talk to you. I love you, Ken, and I love all of you math nerds. An integer is a whole number, and if we have integrity, if we are integrated, we are whole. If we live our lives with integrity, we are living a whole life. If our community is integrated with all of those people who have been cast out and segregated away from us, I'm not talking about the American history, although that certainly comes into play. If we become more integrated, we are more whole, and we have more integrity. And all of that stuff comes into play here. In verse 9, John says this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. If you do not know the story of Abraham, the very brief version is that Abraham was the father of the Israelites. And he was promised in his old age by God that he would become the father of a great family group, a great nation, a great tribe. And he and his wife had never had children, and miraculously, and, uh, miraculously they did, and that became the, the, the lineage of all of the people of Israel, by the way. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees and others might say to John, well, we're fine. We're in the family. We're part of the group. We're all the descendants of Abraham. And he says, uh-uh-uh-uh, don't do that. Don't do that. Because God could turn these stones into the children of Abraham if God wanted to do it. That's not what's going to save you. Don't mistake the fact that God did call a particular people group out into this one family to mean that only that one family can ever be saved. And especially don't think that everyone from that family is automatically saved. You're not saved by your pedigree, he's trying to tell them. God could turn rocks into the descendants of Abraham. And then he says, even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. This is where it starts to get scary. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He will turn you into a stump so fast... He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. That's my thing. 
But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here again is a, an image, a metaphor that probably is not super familiar to us. I don't know how many of you have spent much time threshing wheat. Do you have a favorite brand of winnowing fork? <laughs> I mean, I do, but... Uh, they're kind of in high demand, and if I said it, then everyone would go buy them. I wouldn't be able to get them. The price would go up. Uh, when, uh, <laughs> I know about, about as much about wheat as I do about integers. Um, but the basic idea is that a wheat stock grows up, and there's a seed and a husk. And the seed is the part that we want that's the part that's useful for grinding into grain to make bread and so forth. And the husk just kind of holds it, and you have to separate them. And there's methods for doing that. And one of them is like taking a pitchfork and you know, flipping it around. And, and it sort of separates out. And the chaff is lighter. The, the husk is lighter, so it blows away. Or it's gathered up and burned off. Because the seed is what we really want. Right? Now, I'm betting that 9 out of 10 of you, at least in this room, when I read the part about being burned with unquenchable fire, started to think about hell. How many of you, you can just raise a finger, were like, kind of like going to hell on this one? Sorry, that's, I didn't mean to say it like that. <laughs> like, going to the idea of hell. <laughs> I'm not sure you can get that from this particular metaphor. I think that might come from somewhere else. Now, we have to deal with where it comes from. Some of it is scriptural. But I'm not sure that's quite what this particular one is getting at. Burning off the chaff is not, a, it's not an exercise in torture. It's not a punishment for the wheat stalk. It's simply a removal of the part that is no longer needed. It's a burning away of the husk. Now let's talk in, in defense of husks for just a minute because the seed does not exist without the husk. But once the seed has come to maturity, the husk is no longer needed. It either blows away or is burned away and then the seed is used for its good intended purpose. The husk, the chaff, is not evil. It's just no longer needed. But it did get the seed there. Can you think of anything in your life like that? Kind of got you where you are today. It's no longer needed. And now it's in the way. What would it look like for, for Jesus, who's the one being talked about here, to just burn that up, get rid of it completely for you? That doesn't sound like hell to me. And then also, if you're still not convinced, what does he say next? There's one that's coming more powerful than I. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what else? With fire. Is the baptism with fire, is that supposed to evoke a picture of eternal conscious torment in a hell? Does that seem like it makes any sense to you at all? To be baptized with fire is to be cleansed with this, uh, this unquenchable burning away of all of the things that hold you back, that 
that have brought you to where you are, perhaps, but which are not your intended purpose. They're not who you're supposed to be. They might be inhibiting who, inhibiting who you are supposed to be. Now, I'm not prepared to make a full scholarly uh, argument in this direction, but I do want you to take a look at a text like this and, and ask yourself, where, where does the hell come from? Because I don't think it's from Matthew chapter 3. And there is at least one other way to look at it and to read it. Baptizing with fire sounds a lot more to, like redemption to me than punishment for what it's worth. John baptized people for repentance, for a change of heart, for a change of mind, for a commitment to do better. But Jesus is going to douse you, he says, with the very Spirit of God. A fire that burns away all the undesirable parts so that if you will submit to it, you can't help but be transformed into something better. That metanoia can't help but take root in you. Where your whole life is based, is based on the healthy seed, no longer based on the shell or the husk of yourself that was your former way of life. What if that's the gospel being proclaimed here? I want to take you back to verse 10 very briefly here because I do want to talk about the axe. All that stuff about cutting down the trees that don't bear good fruit. Couldn't we connect that, by the way, to what John has just said to the Pharisees? What did he tell them? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Right? And so if you're not doing that, you're going to be you know, cut down. That's, that's what he seems to be suggesting there. But I wonder what else we could connect it to. Those of you who have the lectionary open on your phone might be able to help us here. Those of you who were present for the call to worship and heard Doug talk about a certain image might be able to help us here. What happens when you cut down a tree? It turns into a stump. A stump is no good to anybody. A stump's purpose has ended. A stump can't possibly accept that it can. What does it say in the prophet Isaiah? A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. What an amazing picture that is. Again, slow down and find the, the beauty that you miss when you speed past it. Can you picture a trump uh, a, 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 a trunk, a tree trunk that is now a stump? I guess you're going to remember it now, though. <laughs> a trunk that's been cut down. The tree is no longer there. It's just a stump. And roots. You know how the roots come out of the ground sometimes? And there's new life growing out of this deadness. If that is not a picture of the beauty of Advent and Christmas, of wading through all this darkness and pain and difficulty and challenge and doubt and feelings of being dead spiritually so that we can see the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse. The branches growing out of the roots. And then you get all that beautiful imagery of like the lion and the, what is it, the, the wolf and the lamb and the, the lion and the 
Well, I mean, you read it. You know what it is. It's all this bizarre, like these things should not be living together and they're thriving together. Wow, that sounds a lot like being integrated. That sounds a lot like integrity and wholeness to me. Go to that next verse and what do you see? At the very end of today's Hebrew Bible reading, he shall be a signal to all peoples and nations. One last, can I give you one last bit of word nerdery today? The word in the Hebrew Bible that we see as families or tribes or peoples, it's almost always the same word. Do you know what it is? It's goyim. In other words, it's the others. It's the Gentiles. It's the ones who are not part of the family of God as defined by the descendants of Abraham, which may be another reason why John said, do not presume to think that being children of Abraham is what will save you. The work that Jesus wants to do is the fulfillment of the original call of Abraham, which, by the way, said that in this family, in this tribe, in this nation, through this nation and family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was part of the original calling. And because people are people, they heard it as, ah, our family gets to be blessed. Our tribe is the one that is saved. No, no, no. May your love cause us to open up. Because the Messianic movement, as prophesied by Isaiah, as connected to Jesus by John the Baptist, and then as lived out and preached and taught in the life of Jesus, and proclaimed by the apostles of the church, and experienced by all of us, that Messianic vision is not a closed community. It's a signal that to all the peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth, all the tribes, including, yes, the ones that are outside the circle. This is the prophecy that Jesus comes to fulfill. This is what we wait for at Advent. A vision of integrity, a vision of integration, a vision of a, of a people of God that is an integer, that's whole. And so if you've ever heard a version of the gospel, a version of the message of Christianity that sounds like it favors the people who have all of their stuff together, that sounds like it is an exclusive club for the people who uh, have the right parentage, if it sounds like it's a safe space for the types of people who put forth a phony outward perfection but inside are rotting and dying, well, that's a gospel you can reject. Because it has very little to do, in my view, with the Jesus who came through this prophetic tradition who promises a lifting up of the poor. I didn't even get into all the messages about the poor in that text in Isaiah and in the psalm, which we didn't even read and don't have time to read today. A Jesus whose most famous sermon is filled with blessings for people who are poor and downtrodden and, and defeated. A Jesus who willingly submitted to a humiliating death and then immediately forgave the people who killed him. A Jesus who offers forgiveness for every wrong. A Jesus who draws together the wolf and the lamb. This is the Jesus we worship whose body was broken for us, 
whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, and not just ours, but theirs as well. Who's them? You know. And so when you come to this table, if you choose to take communion with us, I'm going to invite you to do two things. One is to step into that vision. If it's new to you, it may, it may feel very alive and exciting, and, and it's wonderful to step into that. But sometimes what you need to do is to step out of the other one. So if you have that other gospel in mind, that inc- exclusive, closed-off gospel in mind, that tiny, small, unimaginative gospel, if that's the one you have in mind, I'm going to invite you to leave it at your seat, to come forward and step into the beauty of this expansive, incredible, open, Isaiah-inspired, John the Baptist-inspired, Jesus-inspired gospel. And you take that bread and that, that juice and you remember Christ's sacrifice and love for you. And when you get back to your seat, that other one is going to be gone. So we're going to continue to sing together. Um, <clears throat> on this second Sunday in Advent. I invite you to come and take communion if you would like. If you are a person who chooses not to take communion, no one will look sideways at you at Artisan. Uh, But if you do want to come, please come through the center aisle. The bread looks different, but it is all gluten-free. There's juice and wine. You can choose whatever's more appropriate for you and your family. And you can take it immediately. May it be for you the real presence of Christ our Savior. May it be strength for your weary, hungry souls. And may it be an act of communion of unity with each other and Christians around the world. Our table's open. Come when you will. Let's continue to worship. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.